Let's pray. Father, we do thank you tonight for the opportunity that you've given us to have a place such as this where we can gather in a relaxed atmosphere. We can study the bread of life, be nourished by it, be reminded of its truths. How I was thinking today, Lord, that it's so good to be reminded of these truths. We don't spend time in a portion of Scripture for a while and we come back to it. It renews and refreshes our hearts. And we pray, Lord, that you would do that this evening. That your Spirit would make known to us, not only as a congregation, but as a group of individuals that comprise the congregation. What it is in our lives that you're trying to probe at. What things you're trying to get to. We know that your word is like a sharp sword, sharp two-edged sword. It cuts. We ask, Lord, that if there's any spiritual operation or surgery that needs to take place in our lives tonight, that you would freely do it and we would welcome that. That we might be changed from glory to glory into the same image as your Son. We look forward, Lord, to leaving differently than we came in. And we open our hearts to you completely for you to do that. In Jesus' name, amen. A common question is, why do you read the Old Testament? After all, we live in the New Testament, and as New Testament believers, what does the Old Testament have to do with us? Answer, everything. Because the New Testament authors so often quoted from the Old Testament as examples. Jesus quoted from it, Peter did, John did, Paul did. In fact, let me begin our study tonight in the 10th chapter of 1 Corinthians. Moreover, brethren, I do not want you to be unaware that our fathers were under the cloud. What cloud is that? The cloud out in the wilderness that covered the tabernacle and told them to move and pass through the sea. What sea would that be? The Red Sea. All were baptized into Moses and the cloud and in the sea. All ate of the same spiritual food. All drank of the same spiritual drink. For they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. But with most of them, God was not well pleased, for their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. That's the book of Numbers. Now these things became our examples to the intent that we should not lust after evil things as they also lusted. That's what we'll read about tonight. And do not become idolaters as were some of them. We read about that back in Exodus chapter 32. And we'll read about it again in this book. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Nor let us commit sexual immorality as some of them did, and in one day 23,000 fell. Nor let us tempt Christ as some of them also tempted and were destroyed by serpents. Nor complain as some of them also complained. We're just about to read that. And were destroyed by the destroyer. Now all these things happened to them as examples and were written for our admonition upon whom the ends of the ages have come. Therefore let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. And then that famous scripture, there's no temptation taken you, but such as is common to man and God with that will give you the way of escape. Now let's go back to the book of Numbers, chapter 11. It is one of the most important chapters in this book. You might say this is where the book really gets good. Now, I want to be careful when I say that. I'm not saying the rest of it isn't good, but now it turns to narrative. This is where you look at these stories and you say, you know, I, I can relate to these guys. You know, they're building tabernacles and lampstands and talking about where they're going to march. And it's, you don't relate to that as much. But tonight you'll relate to some of these people because we are flesh and blood we all fail and God is patient with us as he is patient with them I trust more patient with us than he was with them as we'll read in just a little bit but there's a wind of change that is in the air a storm of grumbling is on the horizon it's blowing in after all there's a lot of people and they've been there for 11 months 
at the foot of Sinai. They're walking, and after a few days, it starts getting to them. They realize, man, this is tough. And they start thinking back nostalgically to what it was like in Egypt. Of course, they don't think accurately about Egypt. Their memory is clouded. They have selective memory syndrome. We have that too, don't we, from time to time. We think back to the world, to the flesh, to what it used to be like, and we often exaggerate what it really was like. One of the problems, as we said, is there's a lot of people. There's a few million people out there in the wilderness. Whenever you have a lot of people, you have a lot of problems. How wonderful it must have been the first few weeks in Jerusalem. Jesus just ascended. Peter's out there on Solomon's porch and preaches the gospel, and 3,000 people are saved and discipled and baptized, and they're just getting together for Bible studies and fellowship. But that's a lot of growth in a short period of time, 3,000 plus women and children and another 5,000. And most estimate that in the first few months of the early church, there were twenty to 30,000. That's a lot of folks. And so, as this growth goes on, we read in Acts chapter 6, when the number of the disciples multiplied, there arose a complaint. That always happens. When the number of disciples start to increase, there will inevitably arise complaints. I remember back to the time when I was able to go to the office in the morning, study for my service Sunday morning, take the counseling sessions during the week, keep all of the accounts payable, accounts receivable, help on the building in the church, I clean the restrooms. I do all the visits in the ho- visitations in the hospital, and I had a part-time job. I knew everyone just about on a first-name basis. Well, what happened? <laughs> well, I'll tell you what happened. The number of the disciples began to multiply. That's what happened. And think how different it was for some of the original 120 disciples who are used to the upper room. Can you hear them? I remember the upper room and how close we were to Peter and John. And Oh, and that upper room, oh, that was such an anointed place to meet. Now we have this temple courts. It's so big, you get lost in it. No doubt they look back nostalgically. And there were people who felt like they were chided. It says the widows, that they felt they were neglected at the daily distribution. And a complaint arose. It's interesting, the more people that you have around... A phenomena happens, the exact opposite of what one might think. Rather than making you feel more connected, you often feel more disconnected. That's why people say, I hate big cities. I'm moving to a small community where everything's perfect. Right. Right. I've noticed in small communities where everything's perfect that everybody knows everybody else's business and make it their business to pry into your business. And it's often a big gossip mill. In verse 1, now when the people complained, it displeased the Lord. For the Lord heard it. God hears what our our complaints are. And we now get God's attitude toward our complaining. They complained, the Lord heard it, and his anger was aroused. So the fire of the Lord burned against them and consumed some in the outskirts of the camp. Aren't you glad you live in the New Testament? The people cried out to Moses because he was the visible representative of God. All right, you're the leader. You represent God. We're ticked off at God. We'll take it out on you. And I realize that many times. Some people will come up and and they're very forceful. I have a problem. And often it's a problem with God, but they see me as a representative of God, so I take the heat. So they complain against Moses. And when Moses prayed to the Lord, the fire was quenched. Thank God for Moses. He called the name of the place Taberah, because the fire of the Lord burned against them. This is God's attitude toward murmuring. 
The book of Proverbs tells us that there are several things, seven, that God hates. And up there on the list is he who sows discord among the brethren. God hates the sowing of discord, the complaining, and the grumbling among the brethren. Now, there are some people, the minute you talk to them, you know what the rest of the conversation is going to be. They can't carry on a conversation without getting down on somebody. Somehow it's a self-aggrandizement. When I put others down, it makes me feel better. And because I'm insecure about who I am, if I make everybody else seem worse than I am, I'm going to walk away feeling better about myself. It's a horrible way to pat yourself on the back. But there are some people, the book of Jude says, are grumblers, complainers, who speak great swelling words, and they murmur. The problem with that is the heart. The problem is not the situation. The problem is the heart of the individual. For Jesus said, from the abundance of what? The heart, the mouth, speaks. The mouth is always connected to the heart. If a problem is derived in a person complaining, it's because that person has a problem with his heart. In the book of Proverbs Again, and we're studying it Sunday morning, so a lot of these are fresh. In Proverbs chapter 10, it says, The tongue of the righteous is choice silver, but the heart of the wicked is worth little. The Living Bible puts it very differently, but beautifully. It says, When a good man speaks, he is worth listening to. But the words of fools are a dime a dozen. Ask yourself, are you worth listening to? What's your speech like? Now, verse 4, the mixed multitude who were among them yielded to intense craving, or they fell a-lusting. So the children of Israel also wept again and said, Who will give us meat to eat? I was looking this up. It is thought one of two things, that... The mixed multitude is a, prod, a product of kind of a mixed marriage, part Hebrew, part Egyptian. So they had one parent in Egypt, maybe one parent in uh, the tribes of Israel. And they decided, I'm sick of Egypt, time for a change, let's go with this parent. But because they were part Egyptian, they started the complaining, I miss Egypt, because that's really where part of their family was. They were enough Egyptian to miss Egypt, enough Israelite to want to go out in the desert and follow this God somewhere. But a Hebrew commentary that I was reading says that the Hebrew word could be translated riffraff. The mixed multitude is a term for a conglomeration of all sorts of people. They really don't have any spiritual identity. They're just the dregs of society, the riffraff. They're not really aligned with God. It's always dangerous to have these people around because they start first the complaining and as you know, complaining is very contagious. Once you find something wrong, you can always find more things wrong. Well, I have something to complain about. Well, listen, I have something to complain about too, but I'm not... I mean, there's lots to complain about in life. But once you start it, you're on a roll. It's like a disease that never stops. And I've been around some people, it's like, goodness gracious, every time you're around them, they're always complaining about something. Always, it's like a dark cloud follows them everywhere, like pig pen and peanuts. <laughs> this mixed multitude thought, well, the grass is always greener. I don't know how they thought that. It's barren wilderness out there in the desert. But in a figurative sense, they'd left Egypt, searching for the perfect place to be. And they found out that following this group called the children of Israel wasn't all that perfect. There's a lot of people like that today. They run around the country looking for the perfect place to live. And they find out there's no such thing. There's people in the church like that. I'm looking for just the right church. Funny how they never find it. And I'm always a little bit wary when somebody says, well, I just left, you know, that church over there. And I love it here. I'm thinking, oh, man. Because they'll love it for a while. And just as they look for something to complain about over there, they'll soon complain about stuff over here. Could be that they're a part of a mixed multitude. There was a young lady who came to John Wesley. 
And she said, I think I know what my talent is. He said, what's that? He said, my, she said, my talent is to speak my mind. And John Wesley said, you know, I don't think the Lord would mind if you buried that talent. Verse 5, we remember the fish that we ate freely in Egypt, the cucumbers, the melons, the leeks, the onions, and the garlic, the green chili. But now our whole being is dried up, and there is nothing at all except this manna. And I'm sure they said it like that before our eyes. They'd received so many blessings from God. They had a, a body of water open up and give them dry land to walk across. They cried for a deliverer, and God sent them Moses. God is sustaining them through a cloud, guiding them through the wilderness. It's interesting, though, when you start looking at problems, you forget all about the blessings. You forget all about the things that God has done. That's why the Bible says, In everything give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. Once you start, it's hard to stop. But now our whole being is dried up. Again, verse 6, there's nothing at all except this manna before our eyes. Now, manna was like coriander seed. It's color like the color of delium. Now, they weren't suffering, really. They were discontent, but they weren't suffering. God was taking care of them. They had food to eat every day. And uh, it was an interesting kind of a substance. It provided all of the vitamins they needed. It... Uh, kept them through 40 years of the wilderness. Over in the Orient, where they have the sameness of diet, they eat just rice, and, and, and they don't change their diet much, they find that there's all sorts of vitamin deficiencies, and the feet begin to swell because they don't get all the nutrients. But here's this manna. Miraculously, it had all of the necessary things, so you wouldn't get beriberi, you wouldn't get uh, swollen feet, you had all the necessary vitamins. But they were really looking for a pretext by which to complain. And God was angry at it. You know why? Look at it this way. If I really believe that God is sovereignly in control of my life, do you believe that? Have you given your life to Jesus Christ? Have you asked him to guide every day of your life? Okay, if you believe in the sovereignty of God, which is the basic tenet of Scripture, God is in control. If you start complaining... You're complaining against God. And God doesn't like that. You're complaining against your lot in life, and sovereignly God has allowed that lot to come your way. So in effect, you could be complaining against God. Now, well, I'm in a very rough circumstance. How can you say that? You're not. Well, could it be that God has brought you to a place to purge you? Doesn't God have the freedom to do that? to allow circumstances and even suffering to come your way, like in Job's life. His wife said, curse God and die. And Job said, should we only receive good from God and not evil? The Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. He had the right attitude. It could be that the very thing that God has tailor-made for me to purge out the dross in my life, I'm complaining against. Now, I've got to admit, I'm as guilty as anybody else how many times I've complained about my lot in life and I've complained about the very thing God has put in my life to purge me, to prune me. Now, sometime later I look back and I look at what God did and how he used it and I think, oh, I'm so ashamed, Lord. I was just, I was in the doldrums. And yet this was exactly what you made prescribed for me as medicine. And I was complaining against you. They seemed to have forgotten while they are complaining about the whippings, the beatings. They remember the melons and the garlics and the onions. Interesting. These are like condiments. Except for the fish, they're all stuff you garnish, you add to the food. It wasn't that they missed the food, they, they missed the spice. They missed the differences. Now, probably they were complaining in Egypt about the fish. I, they didn't say that, but I just bet you these kind of people have a tendency to be like that. Oh, we missed the fish. I bet they are. Oh, we always have fish every day. Nile River. 
God was taking care of them, but they were complaining. And they talk about all of the things they had. But remember back as we read the book of Exodus, they didn't have much. They complained because so much was kept from them and they were treated harshly by the Egyptians. But you know, as you look back nostalgically to the past, especially if you've fallen out of love with God, you start imagining things that never really happened. You, you expand upon them. The, you know, the fish grows. The story changes. You add and embellish it every time you tell it. Oh, man, I remember how good it was. Really? You remember how good it was? You remember the whip across your back? Oh, it felt great, didn't it? Oh, and you remembered having to make all those bricks without any straw. And wasn't that awesome? And how they doubled the demand and you cried out for years. Oh, but you've forgotten that, haven't you? And now you look back to the things of the world and it looks so good all of a sudden. But it started with the mixed multitude. The children of Israel caught on. In just a little bit, you're going to see Moses uh, picking up as well. Verse 7, the manna was like coriander seed. It's color like the color of delium. It glistened, in other words. The people went about and gathered it, ground it on millstones, beat it in the mortar, cooked it in pans. They're getting very creative with this stuff. And made cakes of it. Its taste was like the taste of pastry prepared with oil. Okay, it's not bad. Okay, it's not like a filet mignon, you know, or... Uh, um, you know, spicy green chili swordfish or something, but it's not bad, pastry. I could go with that. And when the dew fell on the camp in the night, the manna fell on it. In Exodus, the first time they saw this stuff on the ground, they said, what is it? It says, they said, what is it? Therefore, they called it manna. Now, the Hebrew word for what is it is not manna, it's mazay. What is it? But it could be that they called it manna because there's an Egyptian word called man. And still today, there is an Arabic term for a sticky substance that exudes from plants down in the Sinai in the hot parts of May and June. And it is very tasty, tastes like honey. It's a phenomena of that region. At a particular time of year, the, these plants will drip this honey-like substance. And it could be that because they were used to seeing that, that was the custom of the area, they named it after something that was familiar to them. So the translation could be, therefore they called it man, because they didn't know what it was. It resembled something that they were used to, the phenomena out in the desert. I have an article, though, somebody gave me not too long ago from November. It was in Business Week. And it's about manna, so to speak. It says, the Bible says manna from heaven fed the Israelites while they were in exile. The insect that produces manna is coming to the rescue once again, this time to save the western United States from an infestation of salt cedar trees. The manna scale insect, a native of Arab lands around the Mediterranean, produces manna, a liquid that tastes like honeydew. The pea-sized insect feeds on the salt cedar tree, which was brought to the West as an ornamental tree around 1837. And the article says that as they uh, feed on the tree, they produce this substance, and they're calling it here manna. Well, the big difference is it was supernatural, uh, and it was at... If you go, go to the Sinai, there are places where there's not a shrub in sight. Many of the places where they parked, there was not a shrub in sight. And so... Uh, this was a supernatural thing from heaven. It was not monotonous food, though it looks like it, because as we notice here, they grind it and they bake it and they cook it. They, you know, you could grind it for bread, make cakes out of it. And I'm sure that if that's all you have, the women would get together and they would brainstorm because, you know, the same stuff for uh, all three meals... Uh, for 40 years <laughs> would get very interesting. And so they would have manna souffle. They would have banana bread. Of course, there's manna cotti. 
that you could have with it. It could be that Mrs. Moses wrote a little book, A Hundred Ways to Prepare Manna, just for the ladies to read from time to time. But God provided all the vitamins. Now, when did it come? Every day except, not Sunday, Sabbath. Sunday's not the Sabbath. It was on Sunday. It came out. That's the first day of their week. So they were to gather it every day except on the Sabbath. They were to take the day before twice as much, and that was the only day where it wouldn't stink or rot. If you tried to take uh, two days' worth during the week, the next day it would breed worms and it would really smell up your house. So you had to get it every day. Now, I believe that there is a corollary between our manna, the Word of God, and manna that fell in the wilderness. Here's a few ways I've jotted down. First of all, manna was supernaturally given. It was not a product of nature. God gave it. Even as the Scripture is not just a product of man's wisdom, all Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, reproof, correction, instruction, and righteousness that the man of God may be complete. It's supernaturally given. Secondly, it had to be eaten. God didn't give it to be looked at, to put in little plaques, just to put on their coffee table. Hey, look at this little manna. They had to eat it. It nourished their body. And so God gave us the word of God to eat, to feed on. Not just to look at, say, oh, look at my little Bible. I keep births and deaths in it. And I press flowers on my coffee table. Isn't that cute? It's meant to be fed on. It had to be gathered daily. And I think that your soul and my soul requires the daily gathering of God's manna, the Word of God. It had to be gathered in the morning. That's when they were told to get it. Before you do anything else, that's what you do in the morning, gather the manna. Do you gather the manna in the morning? It's the best time to do it. Set the pace for the rest of your day before you do anything else. It should begin in God's presence. Number five, it was obtained by diligence. They didn't just go out and open their mouths go. <laughs> they had to get it themselves. God provided it, but they had to cooperate with God and actually work. I think the Word of God is so much like that. I love to study the Bible, but I love to study and dig and dig, and the more you dig, you find such beautiful treasures. I find most of my day is consumed with the study of the Word of God, and I am of all men most blessed because of that. But you have to diligently study. And the Bible talks about diligently studying the Word of God to show yourself approved. Six, it had to be gathered by stooping. It wasn't on trees. It was on the ground. They had to bend down to get it. And I think that's the way it is with Scripture. We approach it with humility and with reverence and dependence upon God every morning. And seventh, it was despised by the mixed multitude. You see, they didn't care about spiritual things. They wanted entertainment. They wanted entertainment. And I think that today we are seeing trends within the church that reflect that people are tired of manna, tired of Bible study. Give us more rock musicians, concerts instead of Bible studies, more extended times of just singing. We hear the Word of God all the time. Give us entertainment. Make it more seeker-sensitive. Make it more David Letterman-like. That's what we want. We're tired of manna. We miss the entertainment. The mixed multitude started the grumbling. Let's go to verse 10. Then Moses heard the people weeping throughout their families, everyone at the door of his tent. And the anger of the Lord was greatly aroused, and Moses was also displeased. I can relate, Mo. So Moses said to the Lord, listen to Moses, Why have you afflicted your servant? Now he's starting it. Why have I not found favor in your sight, that you have laid the burden of all these people on me? Wait a minute. God didn't lay it on him, but he feels like it. Did I conceive all these people? Did I beget them? Now, can you imagine talking to God that way? Are these all my kids? 
Did I beget them that you should say to me, carry them in your bosom as a guardian carries a nursing child to the land which you swore to their fathers? Where am I to get meat to give to all these people? For they all weep over me saying, give us meat that we may eat. Little poem even. (laughs) Now that was their chant. Here Moses, you know, every day he'd hear this. He'd go here, go talk to God, make sure Aaron's okay, the camp's okay. He'd go to his tent maybe in the evening and there they'd be. Give us meat that we may eat. Give us meat that we may eat. I'm sick of this. So he complained to God. I am not able to bear, verse 14, all these people alone because the burden is too heavy for me. If you treat me like this, then kill me right here and now. If I have found favor in your sight, do not let me see my wretchedness. Joan of Arc When she was going through a time of suffering, she said, God, if this is the way you treat your friends, no wonder you don't have many. That's what Moses is feeling like. Just kill me. Why did you give me this job? Moses is complaining. Um, It's contagious. Once it starts and you hear it, yeah, yeah. Who can I complain to? I'll complain to you. Now, Moses is not perfect. He is a man. And he failed. I wouldn't say it's a failure. I think if you're going to complain, God is the one to do it to. David said, I roll my complaint or my burden over unto God. And Moses here is complaining to God. He heard it every day. The people complain. Moses starts complaining. Discontentment is so erosive. We want the fish, we want the meat. All the onions. Oh, what I wouldn't do for an onion sandwich, Moses. You know, they're out in the desert. They can't fish. There's no lakes. And a Big Mac attack in the middle of the Sinai Desert. Have you ever been away from your favorite food for a long time? Have you ever traveled overseas? If you've been overseas for an extended period of time, to a small degree, you can relate. I mean, even people that I've known that we've taken to Israel for two weeks, and they have Israeli breakfast, which consists of cucumbers and lettuce and tomatoes and olives and raw fish. After two weeks, they go, I can't wait, man, for a breakfast burrito (laughs) with green chile. But they're in a place where it's manna every single day. Now, Moses is experiencing the discontentment, and he's saying, God, I need some help. I I can't bear the burden of these people alone. I need some administrative help in the ministry. He complained that it was too great. He's tired of the whinings, tired of the complainings. I found a report, a 1991 survey of pastors from Fuller Seminary. Uh, I speak to a lot of pastors, and I hear the complaints and the problems Uh, that pastors have with churches. I thank God for the other men and women that share the staff on this ministry, uh, that it it really spreads the load quite a bit. But here Moses is feeling the brunt of, of it because they're always complaining to him. But in this Fuller Seminary uh, information gathering, they interviewed pastors. And I was surprised to the extent of which the problems were lying They said 80% believed that pastoral ministry affected their families negatively. That's most of them. That's a big percentage. 80% said the pastoral ministry negatively affects my family. 33% said that being in the ministry is an outright hazard to their family. 75% report a significant stress-related crisis at least once in their ministry. I can understand that. 50% feel unable to meet the needs of the job. That I can understand. 90% feel inadequately trained to cope with ministry demands. That's what seminary didn't teach you. They teach you theology. They teach you Greek. They teach you all sorts of stuff. Everything but how to run a church. How to serve a church. And administrate with a team. 40% report a serious conflict with the parishioner at least once a month. 37% confess to inappropriate sexual behavior with somebody in their church. It's a high percentage, folks. 
And 70% said they don't have anyone that they would consider a close friend. Moses is frustrated. He's all alone. Now, it's going to get worse. Because not only does everybody complain, but Aaron starts complaining. And Miriam, his sister, in the very next chapter, start complaining. And now he feels just totally frustrated. I love the words of Jesus. Come unto me, all you that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Learn of me. My yoke is easy. My burden is light. Now, we all ebb and flow, and there are times in our lives where we feel frustrated. But you know what I found in the ministry? So when I start feeling like I'm carrying a heavy load, that I'm not carrying the one God gave me. Because God's load is light. His burden is light. It's easy. Oh, God, this is tough. Well, then, what are you carrying it for? You're not supposed to carry that load, Moses. I'll carry it for you. I told you way back in Exodus, chapter 4 and 5, that I'd be with you. But at least he shares it with the Lord and pours out his complaint before God and we get insight into it. Look at verse 16. The Lord said to Moses, Gather to me 70 men of the elders of Israel whom you know to be the elders of the people and officers over them. Bring them to the tabernacle of meeting that they may stand there with you. Get 70 guys with you, Mo. Then I will come down and talk with you there. I will take of the spirit that is upon you and I will put the same upon them that they shall bear the burden of the people with you that you may not bear it yourself alone. Back in Exodus chapter 18, Jethro, not Bodine, Jethro, the father-in-law of Moses, the Midianite, the priest of Midian, is out there watching Moses every day minister to the people. He didn't say anything. He's just observing. And he uh, doesn't say anything till the evening. He watches Moses try to counsel all the people, just sort of stand there as people in line are talking to him all day long. In the evening, he says, Moses... Well, first Moses sort of brags. You know, God's been good to us. And look at it. And, and he's kind of bragging over his ministry. Expecting Jethro to go, Moses, we're so proud of you as our son-in-law. You're such an awesome man of God. Rather than that, he shoots from the hip and he says, the thing that you are doing is not good. It totally disarmed Moses. He said, you're going to wear yourself out. Now here's Moses. He's the leader of millions of people, and he's listening to these little petty arguments. Yeah, I want you to talk to my friend. He stole my sheep. <laughs> Next. My wife snores at night. Everybody in all the tents around can hear. Yeah, well, you smell like a sheep. <laughs> Moses is listening to all the little complaints. And Jethro said, what you ought to do, Moses, is go listen to God and go represent the people and pray to God and, and the big matters they can bring to you, but have guys that you can raise up that can carry the burden with you and do the counseling. And we find that there's people all over the congregation anyway that are just waiting to counsel. God has gifted them and they want to be used. And I'm sure when Moses said, hey, you 70 guys, I know you to be good leaders. You come alongside. They said, all right, man, finally. Thank you, Lord. And they started getting involved counseling the people. So Jethro said, spread the responsibility around. And uh, he's got his organization here, which becomes later on the Sanhedrin. Now, God began his work with Moses. And I believe that God will often raise up a work through an individual, but then there comes a time, if the individual is smart, that he spreads the load and delegates. And ministries will fold often because leadership is jealously guarded rather than generously given. And I, re I have been involved in some ministries where the pastor is just afraid for certain assistants to teach or leaders to develop within the church because they, uh, the other leaders might be so much better 
than he is. And I say, if they're better, great. If they're better, great. Better to push up those that are better so that if they're gifted at that area and they're better at it than me, great. Then you can do it. I don't have to do it. I can do what God's called me to do. And let's give the people the best instead of trying to be everything that God meant the body of Christ to become. So Moses spreads it out. Yet, I have to say that I'm sure God could have sustained Moses alone. I'm sure he could have. I'm sure God meant to be that to him. It's not your burden, it's my burden, Moses. But because Moses complained and he took the counsel of Jethro, God conceded to it. But I'm sure God wouldn't have even thought about it unless Moses complained. Now, this 70 group, 70 member group, becomes the Sanhedrin. And one night, they rule to put Jesus to death. So much for this wonderful organization. Sometimes churches think, well, we can't do anything without a committee. We need a committee to oversee that committee and this committee to talk to that committee. And there's committee meetings more than ministry. Eventually, Israel will become laden with committees and red tape, bureaucracy. But let's look now at verse 18. Then you shall say to the people, Consecrate yourselves for tomorrow, and you shall eat meat. Now, they just complain for meat. God says, You're going to have meat. For you have wept in the hearing of the Lord, saying, Who will give us meat to eat? For it was well with us in Egypt. Therefore, the Lord will give you meat, and you shall eat. You shall eat not one day, nor two days, nor five days, nor ten days, nor twenty days, but for a whole month till it comes out your nostrils <laughs> and becomes loathsome to you because you despise the Lord who is among you and you have wept before him, saying, Why did we ever come out of Egypt? Oh, you want meat. Oh, you'll have it. You won't have just a little fish burger or a cheeseburger. You'll have it for a month till you're sick of it. Moses said, The people whom I am among are 600,000 men on foot. Hey, look, I, I got 600,000 men, footmen, let alone wives and kids and old, older people. Okay? That's a, that's a few million folks. Where's this meat coming from? You have said, I will give them meat that they may eat for a whole month. Shall flocks and herds be slaughtered for them to provide enough for them? Shall all the fish of the sea be gathered together for them to provide enough for them? The Lord said to Moses, I love this. Has the Lord's arm been shortened? Now you shall see whether I, what I say will happen to you or not. Moses is trying to figure out how it's going to happen. God says, I'm going to give you meat. Wait, 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 wait. We're out in the desert. I've got millions of people. Now, how and where? And he's trying to figure out what God's going to do. Abraham is called the father of faith, you remember, right? The father of them that believe. In the book of Romans, we have the secret that is given to his faith. His first secret. It says, Moses, uh, excuse me, Abraham considered not his own body as already dead, though he's a hundred years old, nor the deadness of Sarah's womb. There's a physical impossibility. Physiologically, he's past the ability to give birth to children. His wife, you know, is almost a hundred. Her womb is dead. It's, it's not productive. It ceased a long time ago. He didn't consider that. He did not consider the physical impossibilities, but he brought into the equation the God factor. Moses didn't do that. He's trying to figure it all out. Now, if I try to, uh, now, physiologically, now, God just said, what, is my arm short? Yeah, all of your calculations, I know you can't figure out how I do it, and it is impossible. And if you try to look at all of your problems in the physical, <laughs> you're going to be bleak. But you bring God, you factor God into the equation. You say, on the human, impossible. Factoring God, simple, easy. God's hand isn't short. 
And then also concerning Abraham, it says he did not stagger at the promises of God through unbelief, but he considered God faithful who promised. God was able to do what he had said. Moses failed in that. Verse 24, Moses went out and told the people the words of the Lord, and he gathered the 70 men of the elders of the people and placed them around the tabernacle. And the Lord came down in the cloud and spoke to him and took of the spirit that was on him and placed the same upon the 70 elders. And it happened when the spirit rested upon them that they prophesied, although they never did so again. But two men had remained in the camp. The name of one was Eldad, the name of the other, Medad. The Spirit rested upon them. Now they were among those listed, but who had not gone out to the tabernacle, yet they prophesied in the camp. And a young man ran to Moses and said, Eldad and Medad are prophesying in the camp. So Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses' assistant, One of his choice men answered and said, Moses, my Lord, forbid them. Sounds very disciple-like, doesn't it? Remember when they came and they said, This man is working miracles and casting out demons. Should we forbid him? We told him to stop. Jesus said, Why? He's not against us. Let him go. Moses said, Are you zealous for my sake? Oh, that all the Lord's people were prophets and the Lord would put his spirit upon them. And Moses returned to the camp, both he and the elders of Israel. Joshua is ready to create a denomination. Moses, we heard wind of these guys. They're rising up as leaders. We didn't sanction this. The board didn't pass a resolution for these guys. And they're prophesying. (laughs) Joshua, you're zealous for my sake. You think I'm intimidated because I'm the leader? Listen, if the Spirit of God was upon everybody and they all walked in the Spirit, my job would be a whole lot easier. Oh, that all of these people were prophets of God. It's a good answer. It's beautiful. And that's what's great about living in the church age. There's a promise from Joel, and it's quoted also in the book of Acts by Peter on the day of Pentecost. Thus saith the Lord, in the latter days I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh, and your sons and your daughters will prophesy. The Spirit of God is poured out in abundance upon all of us. It's not given selectively. But look, look at this. There's not a jealous bone in Moses' body at his response here. He wasn't jealous because others were prophesying. And again, jealousy is a sin. It's a curse in the ministry. But he let him go. He was stoked that they were prophesying. Now a wind went out from the Lord, and it brought quail from the sea and left them fluttering near the camp about a day's journey on this side and about a day's journey on the other side, all around the camp, about two cubits, just a few feet above the surface of the ground. And all the people stayed up that night, all that day, all night, and the next day, and gathered the quail... He who gathered the least gathered ten homers. One homer is 86 gallons, so the very least that somebody got was 860 gallons of quail and spread them out for themselves all around the camp. Goody, 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 goody. You know, they're all happy. (laughs) But while the meat was between their teeth, before it was chewed, the wrath of the Lord was aroused against the people. The Lord struck the people with a very great plague. Now, it could be, They were just struck. Or it could be that God used a couple of things, that they were so excited to eat this meat. They hadn't had it for so long. They just just scarfing it down and inhaling it almost, and it could have got stuck in their esophagus. Or because they had a pretty bland diet, a sameness of diet, here now it's changed to a meat-eating diet, and they're physiologically responding to it. Either way, it's from the Lord. God used it. His anger was aroused. He struck the people with a very great plague. So he called the name of the place Kibrot Hat Ava, because they buried the people who had yielded to craving. So from this place with the strange name that I just said, the people moved to Hazarot and camped at Hazarot. There's an enormous number of quails that migrate each year from Europe down to Africa during the winter months. After winter is over, 
they migrate northward over the Mediterranean, many of them to this area of Sinai. This quail is different from the quail that we are used to. It's a mottled brown kind of a quail. It's a short-winged, weak-flight creature. And uh, when they fly, they get fatigued easily so that toward the end of their journey, they're flying just about three feet off the ground. At the end of their migration, uh, after the winter and the spring months, as they're going northward. And so God brought these birds, no doubt from Africa, who had been wintering there, a nice place to hang out in the uh, European wintertime. They're down in Africa, and, and they come uh, to become meals for the children of Israel. Um, so the people were able to go out there, you know, with their bats, their sticks, and, you know, there's just a few feet, you know, home run. And it says they got ten homers, so... <laughs> That was for you, John. Now let's, we have a few minutes. Let's look at uh, chapter 12. The complaining gets worse. Miriam and Aram, Aaron spoke against Moses because of the Ethiopian woman whom he had married, for he had married an Ethiopian woman. Very little of Moses' home life is given in the Bible. We have a little bit of an insight into it here because there's relationships going on here. Miriam is the older sister, and there's a relationship with Aaron, and uh, there's a jealousy among them. Miriam and Aaron are now jealous of Moses, prophesying, getting the word of God, selecting his own leaders. You know, they're not in the inner circle anymore. They're not in the loop, so to speak. Uh, We, uh, by the way, I don't think Moses' home life was all that picturesque. We view Bible characters as sort of, we look at them through stained glass windows. They must have just been perfect. Read them with an open mind and you see that they're very relatable. They're very much like you or I. He didn't have a perfect home life. And even as adults, there's a big problem between Moses and Miriam. My home life was not perfect. I talked to people and said, oh, my kid is doing this now. It's so bad. And oh, I can't believe it. And I said, well, that's exactly what I did. You did that? Well, we, I always thought you had a just, you know, this perfect upbringing. Oh, oh, no. I grew up with three older brothers. And I had to learn to compete with them. And I, we were always in fights. There was once where I threw my brother through the front window of the house out onto the lawn. It broke all of the windows, and they, it was from the floor up to the ceiling, all huge pane glass. My parents came home from their date, and there the whole front of the house was destroyed. How'd that happen? I threw Bob through it. <laughs> About two or three weeks later, after it was replaced, they were out again, and he threw me through the same window. <laughs> we broke so many windows. I remember the day when I was out in the backyard with a baseball bat and I hauled off and hit my brother right in the nose with it. And I busted, I fractured his nasal bone. It just blood gushed out and I hid under the bed thinking, oh, that's a real safe place. Nobody will find me here. And my whole family kind of gathered over the bed and looked at me, you know, under the bed there. There was the time when I found a switchblade out on the road by our house, and it was old and rusty, and the button had gone from it. There was no handle, but it was metal, and, you know, the blade went up and back and locked. So I walked in and go, hey, Bob, look at this, man. I got a switchblade. And so he said, yeah, but you're just a punk. What are you doing with that? And he started egging me on. So I said, yeah, and, and, and as kids do, you know, we let it get the best of us, and so I poked him with it. He grabbed a pencil, (laughs) and he jabbed me in the arm with the lead of the pencil. And there's so many memories like that. And I bet Moses and Miriam had a few stories like that. Verse 1, Miriam and Aaron spoke again. I already read that. Verse 2, so they said, Has the Lord indeed spoken only through Moses? Has he not spoken through us also? And the Lord heard it. 
Now, he married an Ethiopian. We don't really know what's going on here. I don't think this is Zipporah. In fact, I know it's not Zipporah because we know that Zipporah was a Midianite. This is an Ethiopian. Either she's dead or he just married somebody on top of marrying her. Whatever it was, they didn't like this Ethiopian gal. They, didn't, they liked his first wife. They didn't like this new wife. And they gave him grief over it. And they start complaining, you know, with a spiritual reason. They really have something against him, but they couch it in a spiritual thing. Has the Lord only spoken through Moses? Now, Miriam is his big sister. She was the gal who watched and guided the ark that Moses was put in uh, when it was taken to the house of uh, Pharaoh. And Pharaoh's daughter got it. It was Miriam, you know, that guided the thing and watched it and told mom what had happened. So, you know, hey, listen, Moses, I was around when you were a baby. I pushed that little ark out. You were just a little peep squeak. I know who you are. You're nothing big and fancy. In families, because there is a relationship as brother and sister, you've experienced it if you have come to Christ and God has changed your life, and God maybe even raises you up to some leadership position. Everything is great. A prophet is not without honor except in his own country. You get around your family, and go look at you, You're not Joe spiritually. Oh, they might be impressed with you, but we know you, all right? And there can be grief. Now, God did speak through Aaron before. He's the high priest. He used the Urim and Thummim, remember the stones. And Miriam was called a prophetess, so God spoke through her. So, you know, they remember having bouts with God using them. But they are complaining. And it says, the Lord heard it. One of the greatest dangers, one of the greatest enemies in any church is called gossip. You're mad at somebody. You're ticked off. And so, you have a burden on your heart. And you've got to share it with at least 25 other people <laughs> to spread the burden. And to get them to pray about it with you. And the problem isn't just that there are many mouths that love to speak gossip, but there's more ears that want to hear it. And I think when people bring accusations against your friends or against people and you hear them gossip, I wish you'd ask, can I quote you on that? Where did you get your source? How do you know? Have you investigated? And have you gone to the person yourself? Well, no. Then I don't even want to talk to you. It should end right there because they're not even following a biblical precedent. But, you know, Miriam, you know, starts complaining. Yeah, yeah that's right. Proverbs 18.8 says, The words of a talebearer are as wounds, and they go down into the innermost parts of the belly. Say, well, what's you say, Skip, what's the difference between gossip and a real concern? Well, when you share it, do you raise your voice or lower it? Do you go, hey, uh, come here. I want to just share something with you. Why are you so ashamed to share it? Why don't you just speak up so we can all hear it? All right, verse 3. Moses was very humble more than all the men who are on the face of the earth. And I think one of the characteristics of those who are godly that God uses is humility. When I look at people that I would consider great men and women of God, there's such a humility. It's disarming. I first met Billy Graham. Man, I was so excited because I knew his son Franklin. This was several years ago, and I got to meet Billy Graham for the first time. And when I met him, um, Franklin said, Daddy, I want you to meet Skip. He's from Albuquerque. And, and Billy goes, well, I've heard of you, and I'd like to shake your hand. I'm thinking, what? It's like, I don't know what to say at that. I mean, it's like, no, no, I've heard of you. I'd like to shake your hand. You're like next to God. I'm just this little peon out here in Albuquerque. But he's just so humble. When I was with him in uh, Puerto Rico at his crusade, you know, here's the world's greatest evangelist I would consider. And he's down in Puerto Rico and he's speaking to thousands of people in a stadium and uh, uplinked to countries around the world. And uh, I was with him at his hotel 
and uh, just said, hey, that was a great message last night. He goes, well, it's just the gospel. And I don't know how it's going to go tonight. He goes, I don't know if anybody's going to come. I go, what? <laughs> he said, well, they came last night. Yeah, but I don't know if they're going to come tonight. And he said that a few times. It's, wait a minute. You think, wait a minute, you, you and God are like this. this. You can't talk like that. Here's a man who's been the prophet to presidents and ambassadors around the world, but there's this humility about him. I think that's one of the reasons God can use him. But the person who says, hey, what about my gifts, man? I'm really special. It's about time people start noticing how awesome I am. It's funny how God doesn't seem to pick people like that to use. Isn't it interesting? Moses was meek, humble, more than any who were on the face of the earth. And it's like these guys were walking all over him. And Moses just, you know, he's not going to try to fight for his position or insist on his rights. It's like, okay, I'll step back. God's speaking through you, great. Verse 4, suddenly the Lord said to Moses, Aaron, and Miriam, come out, you three, to the tabernacle of meeting. So the three came out. So dad calls the kids out to the woodshed. The Lord came down in a pillar of cloud and stood in the door of the tabernacle. I don't know exactly what that means, but it sounds awesome. And the Lord called Aaron and Miriam and they both went forward. I get the picture of the Wizard of Oz, you know. <laughs> Come forward. And he said, hear now my words. If there is a prophet among you, I, the Lord, make myself known to him in a vision. I speak to him in a dream. Not so with Moses, my servant. He is faithful in all my house. I speak with him face to face, even plainly and not in dark sayings. As he sees the form of the Lord, why then are you not afraid to speak against my servant, Moses? It is time, so we can't finish it. We'll finish it next week. Heck. Lord, we're so thankful that you take personally the reproaches, the complaints that really are leveled against you. You hear it. And rather than having to defend ourselves, you'll do it. Help us to rest in that, Father. Help us to rest in your sovereign control and some of us tonight have situations in our life that are awfully frustrating and distressing. We've prayed and we've cried for you to have your way in our lives. And yet in your sovereignty, you've allowed this, whatever it might be. Yet this might be the very thing that purges us, cleanses us, draws us closer to you, makes us an effective vessel, a clean vessel. May we humble ourselves before you tonight. May we get a clue. Lord, I think of those who may be drawn here tonight, who tonight, they don't have a real relationship with you. Maybe part of the mixed multitude, maybe not part of the assembly at all. They're curious, they're open, but they're wandering, Lord. But you brought him here. Maybe they're facing circumstances that they just want answers to and they are just checking it out. Lord, I, I pray that you would convince those who are not yet a part of your family, persuade them that it's safe to be a child of God. It's the safest position. And it's safe to go back to church and that there are people who will love them. Father, we would ask that if there's anybody who's sitting in this assembly tonight who hasn't yet made a personal commitment to Christ and a confession that you are Lord, that tonight would be the night of their turning, that they would come from being the mixed multitude to part of your multitude, your people. As we ask you for that, 
we know that, Lord, that you'll honor it. And I now want to ask and invite those who might be here tonight who don't yet have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, but they'd like to make that commitment tonight. Know that your sins are forgiven. Become part of God's people. Would you like that? Would you, if so, raise your hand right now. And I'll pray for you as we close the service. If you're ready to give your life to Jesus Christ tonight, I'm not talking religion or joining an assembly or a church necessarily, but if you're not sure that you're going to heaven, if you're not sure your sins are forgiven, if you don't have peace with God tonight and you don't know him, then you give your life to Jesus tonight. If you'd like to do that, raise your hand right now. I'll close in prayer and I'll remember you as I do. Anybody up? Right over here. God bless you to my left.